to be doing what we've been doing here, kind of on both sides of the microphone, these last eight or nine days, is really relatively rare in the long history of Buddhism. Throughout most of that time, say at least the last 1500 years or so, since uh, the written record has existed, very likely before that, meditation and the teaching of meditation has been reserved for ordained monastics, and mostly men, mostly monks, and to a much, much lesser degree, nuns. And while lay people have been very involved in other aspects of Buddhism, like supporting the monasteries and you know, doing good works, taking care of the poor and the sick and the needy, observing uh, sila and the precepts, the study and some study also as well. Um, they haven't really had access to meditation. Meditation is really almost exclusively the realm of the monastics for many, many centuries. And there were a couple of reasons for this. One is that it was considered necessary to spend many years just becoming literate, to learn Pali, to study and memorize the important teachings before they could actually be put into practice. And it was only really possible to do this as a novice in a monastery, getting very specialized training, learning the meanings of all these very specialized uh, terminology. Another is that there was a very lengthy traditional meditation program, which involved many years of kind of arduous concentration practice, many hours a day of meditation, to just completely still the wandering of the mind so that it was ripe for meditation, for insight. And uh, obviously, people could only do this without needing to care for a family or earn a living or any of those things. And another reason is that meditation instruction was only given to monastics. It was kind of kept tight to to the bosom. It just wasn't taught to lay people Uh, The thinking being that they just wouldn't be able to do anything with it anyway, so why bother? And which they probably couldn't have done much with in the form that it was being practiced at that time. So if you wanted to practice Buddhist meditation, you really had to leave worldly life and become a monk. And not just a monk, but in one of the relatively few monasteries um, with teachers who actually taught meditation in a serious way. Uh, Most monks weren't actually involved in meditation, but within kind of preserving the teachings and passing them on to us so that we have them today. And if you were a woman and wanted to meditate, pretty much all you could do was just try to behave yourself, earn a lot of merit in this life so that you could be reborn as a man and practice in the next life. (laughs) You know, maybe... Maybe if you were a woman from a wealthy family that was particularly indulgent in a community that had some kind of monastic structure for women um, that happened to have a very competent and liberal meditation teacher, um, then maybe you might be able to meditate some in this lifetime. And that's how it was for centuries, century upon century, up through about the middle of the 20th century at which point the cultures of the Buddhist world, the traditional Buddhist uh, countries, went through a major upheaval called World War II, um, which was absolutely horrific in Burma, where uh, our lineage derives from, 
you know, is at this really at this really strategic location, and Japan really wanted to get it, and the British and the Chinese really didn't want them to get it. And it was just a really messy and savage war in Burma. You know, the human suffering and just the sheer physical damage to the society were devastating. And, you know, arguably the country's never really recovered, you know, even now. So the war ended and all across Asia there was this huge surge of interest in meditation. I, I reflect sometimes on the atmosphere that we had here in the wake of 9-11, which uh, I think everybody here is old enough to be able to remember what that was like, what a, what a terrible time in our history it was that desperate need to make sense of the violence somehow and to find solace and to connect with some deeper meaning in life. And I think what it might have been like, you know, for years there had just been one 9-11 after another. You know, this is what it was really like in Burma during the Second World War. And out of that, out of that time of really deep questioning, re-examining, um, a number of exceptional teachers emerged to meet the need to bring the benefits of the Dharma and to meditation to the traumatized population that was no longer content to just go through the forms, to just go through the motions of being Buddhist, but that really wanted to uh, access the deeper peace that was promised by these teachings. And one of those teachers was Mahasi Sayadaw, who we keep mentioning. And the approach to meditation that he laid out didn't require any special preparation. It didn't require a monastic education. It didn't require learning Pali, or even being literate, for that matter. It didn't require years of preparatory concentration practice to kind of make the, the mind fertile to receive insight. It didn't require complete renunciation of lay life. All that it required was just a clear understanding of how to be mindful. And this was absolutely revolutionary. And among those that Mahasi Sayada trained, there was an Indian civil servant, a layman living in Rangoon, Yangon at the time, named Munindra. And Mahasi Sayada encouraged him after he had studied and practiced to return to India and teach. And he ended up at the Burmese Vihara in Bodh Gaya in India, the site of the Buddha's enlightenment, which was visited one day by a young Peace Corps volunteer named Joseph Goldstein. And here we are today, <laughs> in a nutshell. <laughs> but if we look at the Pali Canon, there was really a strong, very strong, rich tradition of lay practice in his time, according to the record that's come down to us. There are many, many lay people that appear in the Canon, and not just in the supporting role, of kind of sustaining the community, providing the Buddha and his followers and the monastics with their requisites and what they needed to exist. Although that was obviously a very important part of their role. Initially, the Buddha's following was made up of a relatively small group of men. You know, he started by going to what's called the five ascetics, who had been his companions in the holy life before his enlightenment, that he thought would be particularly receptive to what he had discovered, to learning what he had to share about the Dharma, about the truth he had found. And they all got enlightened in pretty short order. And then a few others joined the ranks. So initially it's just this relatively small community of, of arahants, really. And this didn't go unnoticed by the lay communities that they were moving through. You know, they're just kind of roaming around, being enlightened. <laughs> 
And they tended to get noticed, you know, that this, this really amazing group of beings had come among them. You know, the local community noticed this. And there were ordinary people who were intrigued, you know, who were of a certain bent of mind, spiritually inclined. And they would go to the Buddha and his companions, you know, and they brought them food and clothing and medicine and water, whatever they thought they might need, um, as was the tradition then, as now in India, to really support uh, the holy life, and which was really essential for the survival of, of the Buddha and his little band. But these lay people also questioned the Buddha. You know, they didn't just show up with gifts, they wanted to talk to him. You know, they would ask him, who are you? What do you believe? What do you teach? What do you practice? And the Buddha on his side didn't just kind of take whatever they brought and say, you know, well, thanks a lot, see you later. <laughs> he would talk to them too. He taught them, he shared his understanding with them. He didn't hold that back from them. And there were many, many lay people, according to the records, who really got it, who really got something out of the teaching. All over the Pali Canon are stories of lay people who got to at least the first stage of enlightenment. That first stage of enlightenment apparently is just one meeting with the Buddha and you've got it, you know, really easy to get there. Um, <laughs> and there are many lay people that went even beyond that to very high levels of understanding. And our understanding, you know, those of us teaching this retreat, is that this is not just myth, but a real possibility for us as lay people, and not just in the time of the Buddha, but really here today, in this world, in this life as we live it. And in Burma, if you go to practice there, this is just taken completely for granted, that of course this is accessible to us, of course this is an op option for us, it's just not even questioned. And it makes a huge difference to practice in an atmosphere where that's the understanding, where that's the faith. The Buddha spoke about the fourfold community of his followers, what he called the parisa. So that included four different groups of people that were following his teachings in some way or another. There were the monks, there were the nuns, and then there were the laymen and the laywomen. So this fourfold collection of beings. And when the Buddha spoke about them, he didn't insert value judgments in there. You know, he didn't talk about, you know, the noble monks and the kind of uh, you know poor nuns that can't do any better in this lifetime, you know, or the the, the noble uh, ones that have uh, been able to go forth, and the lay people that just don't have any access to peace and freedom in this life. He met everyone where they were, and he had something to offer to everyone, and he really asserted the ability of anyone in any circumstances to awaken, to find peace and freedom. So within this tradition, we find many illustrious lay people. And it's true that for, for many of them, for most of them, the practice of sila, of dana, was a large part of what they were doing in lay life. Um, but it's also true that the Buddha encouraged them towards bhavana, towards mental development as well. And many got enlightened. It's said that the disciple of the Buddha, who was foremost in the capacity for a metta, was not a monastic, or even an arahant, or even a man, <laughs> but a laywoman called Samavati. She was raised in very humble circumstances. She did not come out of great wealth and power. Um, but she came from a very loving family, 
where she received a lot of love and learned to offer it as well. But around the time that she became a young woman, there was a horrible epidemic that swept through the region that she lived in, in northern India. And she lost both of her parents, the rest of her family, uh, many of those that she loved. Um, But she accepted her circumstances with great equanimity. She didn't hold a grudge against life. But she persevered, and she sought refuge in a neighboring town that was taking refugees that hadn't been hit so hard. And there she caught the attention of a local official who was immediately struck by her gentleness and her warm, radiant energy. So he took her into his household when he found that she was an orphan. She didn't have anyone to protect her. He brought her into his household, and she lived contentedly there until one day when the king, who was King Udena of Kosambi, he caught sight of her around the court with uh, her protector. And he, too, was struck by her radiant, loving presence. And he immediately became enamored of her and decided to marry her. So she rose very quickly because of this, this radiance from her, her kind, gentle heart, from you know, the very depths of poverty, uh, despair, to a very exalted and privileged position. But she still didn't have an easy time in the palace. Um, King Udena had a bit of a temper, and she didn't quite have an easy time with him. And uh, he also already had two wives, which makes for a bit of palace intrigue. So, you know, you get the sense that it was kind of like the machinations that go on, you know, at the upper ranks of a big corporation or something. There's a lot of backstabbing and dramas and, you know, all that kind of thing. But Samavati always approached her challenges with genuine metta, not putting her own concerns first, not blaming her enemies, really keeping her heart open to them, and just persevering with a genuine sense of caring for everyone involved, trying to find the best solution for the general good. One of Samavati's servants was named uh, Kujutara, and she was uh, also from very humble background, a very plain, it's an unattractive woman with some physical uh, challenges, um, a bit lame or hunchbacked. And she was kind of Samavati's gopher. So the, the women of the royal household were in a harem. You know, they were, were in seclusion. They were sequestered. They couldn't just kind of go roaming about the town as they saw fit. It wasn't seemly. So she was confined to the palace. And when she wanted you know, a little something from outside the palace, she'd have to send one of her servants to go for it. And uh, Kajutara seemed to fill this role. So each day she would give eight pieces of money to Kajutara, it said to go and buy her flowers or you know, whatever little things she wanted from the market. And it said that Kajutara would find a way to spend four of the pieces of money on what the queen wanted and keep the other four kind of in her pocket. <laughs> and one day as Kajutara was out running her errands for the queen, she came across a group of people sitting and listening to the Buddha. So out of curiosity, she just kind of stopped around the edges in the back to listen to what was being said. And the Buddha noticed this woman, this very unremarkable woman, at the back of the crowd. And he sensed that she had a real potential for realizing the Dharma. So he sort of shifted the gears of his talk. He changed it so it would be just what she needed to hear to kind of get it, to keep her interest. 
And by the end of the talk, she had attained the first stage of enlightenment. <laughs> and she didn't quite know what had happened to her. You know, she hadn't had any direct contact with the Buddha. But she knew that she now felt remorseful about not being quite honest with the queen and pilfering this money from her. So when she got back to the palace, she bowed to the queen and, and returned her ill-gotten gains and confessed her wrongdoing. And she also told the queen how she had encountered the Buddha and what she had heard there. <clears throat> and Samavati was fascinated. You know, she didn't particularly care about the money, but there was this dramatic change that had come about Kajutara. And it was so interesting what she was relating about this Buddha's teaching. So after forgiving Kajutara, she instructed her to go out and find out more about the Dharma and to bring back what she learned. So each day, Kajutara would go and listen to the Buddha where he was sitting teaching in the public square. And she would come back and repeat everything she heard to Samavati and the other ladies of the court that weren't allowed to go out in public. And Samavati eventually took the three refuges and later influenced all the other women in the royal household in the harem there to do the same. And it's said that there's um, a book in the Pali Canon, one of the suttas, called the Itivutaka, which is just a, a short collection of teachings, but it's just really sweet and straightforward. You can, um, I'm not sure if we have it in the, the welcome room here, but it's available, um, pretty good translation of it. And this is attributed to this uh, servant woman who uh, went and collected the Buddha's teachings and recounted them to the queen in her attendance. And one day when he was in a particularly good mood, he was feeling very pleased and jolly, um, King Udena offered to give Samavati anything he, he, she desired. He offered her a boon, the granting of a wish. And for a long time, she had really wanted to hear the Dharma from the Buddha himself. So straight away, she asked that the Buddha be sent for to offer teachings in the palace so that she and her ladies could listen. And the king was like, sure, why not? We'll get him. So he sent for the Buddha. <laughs> but the Buddha actually declined the invitation. And the story doesn't relate why, but he sent Ananda, who was his uh, cousin and attendant and was said to have a very warm and loving heart. Um, he sent Ananda to go in his place. So Ananda gave a talk on the Dharma to the queen and the other assembled people of the court. And by the time he had finished, Savati had achieved the first stage of enlightenment. <laughs> and with Samavati's encouragement, many members of the royal household went on to become enthusiastic Buddhists. They became big followers of the Buddha. King Udena, you know, he, he didn't really come around, not in that lifetime anyway, but it's said that with um, Samavati's influence and the inf general influence on the court, he eventually learned to, to curb his anger a little bit and to become a little bit more uh, gentle and easy to deal with. And the Buddha, he stated that Kajutra, the servant woman, was his most learned female lay disciple. He kind of liked to hand out these titles, you know, the most, most capable of metta, most learned, you know kind of pointing out who were the exemplary figures in his, his uh, four, fourfold uh, community. He said that faithful female lay disciples should urge their be beloved daughters in the following manner. Dear, you should become like Kajutra, the lay follower, for this is the standard and criteria for my female disciples 
who are lay followers. So there were very respected yogis and teachers among the lay community of the Buddha's time. And also now today with this renaissance of of lay practice, we've kind of come around full circle to a similar uh, situation where some of the most accomplished yogis of the modern era era have been lay people. We speak a lot about Deepama, whose biography we have here in the welcome room. Um, She was uh, what's called a white-clad lay follower. So she lived kind of a quasi-renunciate life. You know, she had a daughter, she had grandchildren, a large extended family that she was involved with, and um, she didn't see any need to leave that behind. But she put on the white robes and lived a very simple life within the midst of that, kind of balancing uh, the the renunciate life with, with householder life, with being engaged with family. And she didn't actually come to the Dharma till relatively late in life. She had a very difficult early life, you know, at the beginning of the century, uh, 20th century in uh, Bengal and Burma. Um, A lot of hardship, um, being married off in an arranged marriage very early, then having difficulty having children, then finally having children and losing uh, most of them, losing her husband very early on. Um, Her health began to fail just as a result of being crushed by all the loss and the difficulty in her life. Um, so eventually, in middle age, she found her way to the meditation center, very much as a last resort, like many of us do, um, because she just couldn't keep going any other way. Um, but she went on from that point to practice with Manindra and other teachers and become one of the most accomplished yogis of the 20th century within this tradition, uh, capable of astounding feats of concentration. Um, it's said that she had supernormal powers and could perform all sorts of amazing feats. Um, But just beyond that, she's said to have had this incredible aura of gentleness and kindness and clarity. So we have many different paths available to us as modern Westerners. You know, some of us may decide to ordain for shorter or longer periods. You know, there are some Westerners that enter into robes uh, for a lifetime, but not many. some of us, many of us, have no interest in ordaining. You know, we're just here in the world. We're committed to our family. We're committed to our communities. We're committed to our work. And many people end up kind of somewhere in between, you know, in the world but not of it, kind of like Deepama, living with a certain amount of renunciation but still also with uh, relationships and responsibilities. So there's no one right model for how to do it. And fortunately, the form of our lives, the specifics of our situation, are not what's really essential for our progress on the path. This really comes through clearly when we look at all those stories from the canon and when we look at the stories of just modern practitioners, the great variety that there is, people in all sorts of life circumstances, you know, lay people and ordained, uh, young and old, rich and poor, healthy and sick, Uh, Brilliant and uh, what in the Buddha's time was called simple. (laughs) Even intelligence is not uh, a determining factor to what we can get from this path. It's really the sincerity of our aspiration and of our effort to live an examined life, to live with awareness and intention. This is something that Deepama said. You have seen me. I was disheartened and broken down 
due to the loss of my children and my husband and due to disease. I suffered so much, I couldn't walk properly. But now, how are you finding me? All my disease is gone. I'm refreshed and there is nothing in my mind. There is no sorrow, no grief. I am quite happy. If you come to meditate, you will also be happy. There is no magic to Vipassana. Only follow the instructions. So if we're sincere in our spiritual practice, then we will have a wholesome desire to pursue it, to walk the path to the best of our abilities. That wholesome desire is called chanda. And yet at the same time, we'll recognize that our understanding is not yet perfect and that our lives are complicated. We've all heard you saying this in different ways today. And so it's natural to have fears about messing up about not doing it right, not getting it right. We may worry that there are impediments in our lifestyle that will get in our way, that we just don't have the right container for doing this practice in the circumstances of our life. But the Buddha taught that there are appropriate concerns and inappropriate concerns regarding our spiritual life. And he gave us some guidelines about what is and isn't reasonable to worry about. So it's very common for yogis to think things like, I'm in love, or I'm still interested in romantic or sexual relationships. And you know, there's so much desire and attachment involved in that. So how can I walk this path? Maybe I have to wait until I'm over all that. You know? Or maybe I'm caring for my family, you know, and I'm really devoted to them. And that involves just so much commitment, so much responsibility, again, so much attachment, so much aversion. Um, so how can I walk this path in the midst of all of that? You know, maybe I have to wait until all that is over. <laughs> or maybe I have a career or project or a cause that I'm really devoted to, that I'm really passionate about, and I don't want to give that up. You know, but yet there's so much responsibility and craving and, and aversion involved with that. So how can I walk this path? Or maybe just, you know, I really like to be comfortable. I like to enjoy life. I have a beautiful home or beautiful things. I like to travel or create, create art or music or be with my friends or just simply have enough money to buy the things that I want to enjoy, you know. And that involves so much time and effort and craving and aversion, you know, so how can I walk this path? But the Buddha taught that all of those kinds of things are really misplaced fears unhelpful concerns. <coughs> this teaching is presented in this, this little Burmese book that I have that I brought back from Burma. I picked up at the Shwedagon Pagoda. And I look at it a lot because it's got lots of, a lot of interesting tidbits in it that I haven't seen in other places. And it's also got a really quaint uh, translation. You know, It's clearly not a fluent English speaker that was translating this book. And it gives a whole list of things that we don't need to be concerned about in our spiritual life, which includes what it calls boy meets girl, <laughs> which I just love, you know, which could obviously also be boy meets boy or boy meets girl, you know, whatever the case might be. So falling in love, you know, being in love, being in relationship, 
wanting that in our lives is on this list of things that we don't need to worry about, those obstacles on our spiritual path. There's this really lovely story that I came across. Um, unfortunately, it was after my husband and I were already married, so I couldn't put this one in our service. <laughs> <laughs> It says that um, during the time of the Buddha, there was a couple known as Nikula Pita and Nikula Mata, which is literally, literally Nikula's mom and Nikula's dad. <laughs> Sometimes those of us that are parents feel like that's what our role in life has been reduced to. <laughs> and it said that they had been together as life partners in many, many lifetimes together. And during the time of the Buddha, they were able to hear his teachings and do some practice together and had gained some true insight into the nature of impermanence. And they had become devoted lay supporters and followers of the Buddha. And it was also said that this couple had been in a close relationship with the Buddha-to-be before his enlightenment during many of their previous lifetimes together. At times they had been his father and mother, other times his aunt and uncle, so that they felt very at ease and very kind of affectionate towards the Buddha, almost like he was their son. And they were able to speak to him very frankly, without a lot of formality, without a lot of ceremony. So at one time, they were sitting and discussing the Dharma with the Buddha. And Nikula Pita, the husband, he said to the Buddha, Venerable Sir, I took Nikula Mata as my wife when I was young. And since then, I have never even had a thought of infidelity, let alone an actual lapse. I've always wanted to be just with her in this lifetime, and I always want to continue to be with her until our journey through samsara is complete. And hearing those words, Nikula Mata echoed the same sentiment. She said, Venerable Sir, I came with him to his house in my youth, and since then, I've never had a thought of anyone else. I've always wanted to be with him, and always want to be with him, throughout the whole of samsara. And the Buddha responded to this very sincere expression of deep affection between this old couple, with a brief teaching on how to ensure that they would remain together in such a caring and supportive relationship into the future. He said, if two partners who are leading a harmonious life together wish to remain together in the future, then they should take care to be well-matched in the qualities of faith, morality, generosity, and wisdom. Just as one is inspired and enthusiastic in their faith, so should the other be. Just as one is careful and compassionate in upholding moral conduct, so should the other be. If one of them wishes to support a worthy cause, the other should encourage them. If the other wishes to offer aid, the first should be delighted. And so too they should strive to understand each other equally through wisdom and knowledge. So this is another one of those stories that I find just fascinating. You know, it's really so modern in the tone of it. You know, the Buddha doesn't come back at this old couple with, you know, well, you should really try to get over your attachment to each other so you can get enlightened, you know. That's, that's not the message he gives them. Instead, he really validates, you know, I think, the, the beauty and the value of a committed partnership that is based on shared, a shared wholesome aspiration in life, shared values, shared aspiration and vision. You know, that we don't all need to be monastics. That's not all where we all are on our path. 
There's a passage from the Burmese commentary that elaborates on this teaching. It says, if two partners are in harmony and willing to be together, if they are well matched in generosity, morality, faith, and confidence, then they will live together in samsara, like the glorious devas and devis who live together joyfully in the heavenly abodes all through the cycle of rebirth. And there are other things on this list from my little book, list of things not to worry about in spiritual life. So it also includes things like working for a living and earning money, you know, whether it's a little bit of money or a lot of money. We don't have to worry about it. Things like being engaged in trade and commerce. So really being worldly people, you know, engaged in economic activity. Being involved with courts and litigation. So kind of entering into the political, the legal life of our society and community. Don't need to worry about that. It also includes things like eating and sleeping and making love. So just meeting all of those basic human needs that we all share. So none of these things are what we need to stress about in our lives. We don't need to worry that our lives are somehow not spiritual enough because of any of these elements. We don't actually need to worry about any of these kinds of things that we can somehow get the idea that they're not spiritual enough. that there's somehow an obstacle on the path. And any kinds of worry or fearful thoughts that we might have about those kinds of things are really just another form of aversion. It's kind of Mara getting tricky, you know, trying to sneak in through the door of our thoughts about our spiritual practice, saying, you know, you don't really need to practice now. You've got an impediment. There are circumstances that make it too hard for you, you know. Just wait until conditions are better. You don't need to do it right now. And again, all that we need to do with that, you know, if that kind of thing is coming up for us, is just to recognize it, to turn and say to Mara, I see you, I see what you're up to. The Buddha actually encourages us in many places to really take delight in being able to live in the world skillfully, being able to live in the world with the intention of non-harming, keeping the precepts, doing our best, trying our best to be a force for good in the world and to those around us. On the other hand, the Buddha also said that there are things, there are aspects of our lives that it's very appropriate and very helpful to be concerned about, even to the point of being fearful about them. And these are all of the things that Kamala spoke about last night, and it's kind of falling within the realm of Hiri and Otapa, the wholesome and wise forms of apprehension, which stem from our own healthy desire, really, to protect ourselves, to protect others, to guard our self-respect, to guard the community that we live in. So, so the Buddha said that we really should be concerned about the defilements, about greed, hatred, and delusion. We should really be concerned about those kind of running amok in the mind, running unfettered and unnoticed and unchecked. So not just simply about them arising, you know, they will arise when conditions are right. That's natural. But what we should be concerned about is that they arise without us seeing them and that they get acted out without awareness and without restraint. The Buddha said to Anattapindika, his foremost lay supporter, if the heart is corrupted, 
then all actions, words, and thoughts are tainted too. Such a person will be carried away by his passions and will have an unhappy death. Just as the gables, rafters, and walls of a badly roofed house are unprotected and will decay because they will rot when drenched with rain. And the defilements are tremendous drivers in our life. You know, we really get to see that here. And we all know, you know, it's the same out there. And this is why it's so important to bring this practice right into our lives. With greater awareness, we can see the defilements for what they are. And with a wholesome aspiration and careful restraint, then we can do our best not to impose those defilements on those around us. And again, it's not that we need to try to keep the defilements from arising. You know, good luck with that. (laughs) We just need to make our best effort to catch them in the act, to see what Mara is up to. Whatever skillful action that we're going to be capable of, whatever restraint, has to start from that place of knowing what's actually going on in our hearts and minds. That's what opens up the window of opportunity for us to make a different choice, to find a different way. When we're able to see those forces driving us, then they can become the fuel for wisdom rather than for suffering. They can become an integral part of our path. They have to be rather than an impediment to it. The Buddha said, for a person forced on by his thinking, fierce in his passion, focused on pleasure, craving grows all the more. He is the one who tightens the bond. But one who delights in the stilling of thinking, always mindful, cultivating awareness of what is unskillful, she is the one who will make the end, the one who will cut Mara's bond. And this is the great challenge and the great potential of practice in daily life. You know, it takes such courage and such commitment to be willing to really face the truth of what's driving us. It's so much easier just not to look too closely. I find this going on a lot for myself around my children these days, as those of us who are parents inevitably do. You know, there's so much love and desire and ambition all tied up in them. Part of me just really doesn't want to look at it too closely, just really would rather not know. And yet I know that the best thing that I can do for them is to look, to make the best effort that I can to be in touch with my own heart and how I'm relating to them, so that I'm not just blindly acting out my passions around them, so that I can hopefully offer them a greater share of metta, of real love, true love, and spare them, hopefully, you know, a little bit of the other stuff. My son right now has just turned one. He's just starting to toddle around. And he's just so incredibly appealing, you know, to every sense door. You know, that soft little body of his and that expressive little face with the bright eyes and the disarming smile. And, you know, just all the little baby noise that, he's, that he still makes, you know, and, and just the smell of him, you know. At times it really takes my breath away. The pleasure is just so intense. And I'm completely consumed with craving. Um, it feels insatiable. You know, there's just no way to fill that longing that he arouses in me. And then the next moment, you know, <laughs> he's a toddler and he's crying. 
He's arching his back. He's trying to squirm out of my arms. And I don't know what he wants. And he won't tell me because <laughs> he can't talk yet. <laughs> and maybe we're in public. You know, maybe I'm exhausted. And there's just such strong aversion. You know, I just want to make it stop. <laughs> and in both of those situations, I am so powerful in his little world, you know. I could crush him with my anger, literally, you know. I could crush him with my adoration. But if I can just see the anger or the adoration, then I find I can maybe not crush him quite so hard, you know which is the much deeper longing that I hold around him. I find that walking this path in daily life is a juggling act. It really is, trying to keep a lot of balls in the air at once. Um, It's the act of juggling what's called the three trainings, which is sort of a shorthand for the Eightfold Path, the, the formula for spiritual life that the Buddha laid out for how to walk this path and how really to cultivate wisdom and find happiness. It's not here anymore, but for many years there was a a Dharma wheel up at the front of the room here, that wheel that you've probably seen with the eight spokes representing the turning of the eightfold path, how it goes round and round and carries us in an upward spiral, really, towards liberation, towards peace. And I know you're at the place in the retreat now where you're thinking, please, not another list. (laughs) just please let it not be another list (laughs) so I'm not going to talk about the Eightfold Path in detail tonight you'll be relieved to know but just to think about kind of on on a big picture level you know what are the ingredients of a satisfying and productive spiritual life what do we want to include in the mix and part of the point of this being that that doesn't really change regardless of kind of the form, the context for our practice. Whether we're here in retreat or we're out in the world, the strands of our practice, the elements of it, the essential elements are really the same. It's just really kind of the proportions of the ingredients that change. So there's just these three basic ingredients. There's the strand of understanding, the strand of restraint, and the strand of meditation those three elements are really what this path is about, what it comes down to. I was in a conversation not that long ago, just a few weeks ago, with um, an acquaintance of mine, somebody who I've met recently, and we're still kind of getting to know each other. And uh, we got on this topic of, of spiritual life, you know, and what do you, what do you believe, you know, what do you do, you know, what's your history, that kind of thing. And, um, you know, she told me a little bit about what she was up to and how she'd been raised. And... I said, well, you know, I was uh, raised Jewish, but now I'm kind of a Buddhist, you know. And she said, well, what does that mean? Does that mean you meditate? (laughs) And, you know, as Kamala was saying this morning, over the years I've kind of developed the skill of of not saying very much about what it is that I I do. (laughs) Um, So, you know, usually when people come at me with that kind of question, I say, yeah, you know, I meditate some. And, uh, you know, that's usually plenty. That's usually all they want to know, you know. But for some reason with this, per- this person, you know, I felt, I sensed that she was really sincere, you know, we're kind of, she's somebody I feel a connection with and we're in the process of, get, of getting to know each other. So I said, well, really, I would say I do meditate, but I would say that I practice the Eightfold Path because there's really a lot more to it than just meditation. That felt like the, the honest answer to give. 
So these three basic ingredients, understanding, restraint, meditation, are really what our practice is composed of. If we pursue the teachings that the Buddha laid out, the path that he laid out in, a, in, a, in, a, in its fullness, in a comprehensive way. Understanding here referring to the understanding of, of what's going on, <laughs> of what we're doing here in this body, in this mind, in this life. The whole process of coming to understand that. What are the fundamental truths about how it all operates? And where and how can we find happiness? Restraint referring to the practice of sila that Kamala spoke about last night and that I was speaking about a little bit just now of making our best effort not to just blindly act out our passions but to be aware and to be careful and to be compassionate in what we say and what we do. And meditation referring to the training of the mind that Kamala spoke about last night as bhavana. Applying the mind in such a way that we can weaken its unskillful habits the ones that cause suffering, and strengthen those qualities that lead to happiness. So those are the three ingredients, the three balls that we're juggling in our practice. Understanding, restraint, and meditation. And we do that here in certain ways, and we do that out in the world in certain ways. So you may have thought that you were here for a meditation retreat. You may have thought that that's what you were coming for. Maybe you think that's what you've been doing. But really, it's, it's just as much of an understanding retreat. It's just as much about that. You know, for a silent retreat, we do a lot of talking at you, a lot of talking with you. you know, we've been putting out a lot of information in the talks and in the instructions and in the Q&A and in the interviews. And all of this is to support the development of your understanding. The, the development of a conceptual framework that's in alignment with the actual truth so that you can proceed in your life and in your practice in a way that will get you where you want to go. And on top of that, you've added your own understanding, everything that you've learned while you've been here about yourself, about your life, the new concepts and ideas that you've developed that are in alignment with what you've actually experienced that are based on the actual empirical truth that you've seen for yourselves while you've been here. So there's that activity of cultivating understanding that's been going on here, you know, right in step with the meditation practice. And that strand of the path doesn't end when we leave here. It doesn't have to. We can continue right on with that element of the practice in our daily life. Some Some of us may have an interest in formal study Uh, reading, listening to talks, attending classes, really delving into the Buddha's teachings. And that's one way we can move along with our understanding. But even if we don't study at all, our understanding can still continue to evolve in other ways. It doesn't have to be through that academic, intellectual route. Maybe it's just reflecting on what's going on here. You know, it can take some time intellectually to process what we've experienced here, what we've seen, what we've learned. And you have permission to do that once we break silence. (laughs) We won't keep telling you, don't engage with the relative world, don't engage with the thoughts. A time comes when that's important. It's important to reflect on what's happened and what have we learned. Or maybe just through our awareness practice. You know, if we keep it up out there in the world, there will be moments of insight. There will be moments when we catch Mara at work, when we see what's going on, when we get a greater understanding of how our minds and hearts and bodies operate. So just by paying attention, our understanding will continue to evolve. 
So it's not at all that we need to, to give up this element of the practice when we leave here. We can take it right along with us. We practice cultivating understanding here, and we can practice it out in daily life as well. Then again, this has also been a sila retreat, whether you've realized it or not. You know, we practice sila or restraint here in this pretty contrived, fairly artificial way. You know, not talking, not looking to each other, uh, mostly not interacting in ordinary ways. My, my daughter, who's six, is kind of just starting to get this. She's been coming here ever since she was a baby, but it's just kind of starting to sink in what it is we actually do here a little bit. So she, we were talking about silent retreat the other day, and she's saying, you mean they really don't talk at all? <laughs> I was saying, well, you know, they talk some when they're with the teachers, but otherwise, yeah, they don't talk. And she said, well, can they whisper? <laughs> <laughs> so she's kind of starting to get it. <laughs> So we might wonder, you know, how is this really applicable to our ordinary lives out there? It's, it's so different from our usual way of being with others, being in community. And yet it's just because our interactions are so constrained, they're so simplified, that the restraint aspect of sila really can jump out at us, really can become apparent. You know, we really get to see what's going on inside of us in relation to other people, which is really the, the critical part of it. If you've been lucky enough to have a VR, a Vipassana romance, or a VV, a Vipassana vendetta, while you've been here, then you've really gotten to see this, you know, during your time here, just what it takes not to act on those feelings and those stories. You know, it takes a lot of restraint. And it's the same principle that operates out there. Even if things have been very harmonious during our time here with our fellow yogis, you know, if we felt a lot of love and compassion for those around us, um, we still can't help but notice just how much we notice them, <laughs> everyone who's around, and how much comes up around that, all of the thoughts and the feelings. So despite being in silence, we get to learn a lot here about how we are with other people, how we are in relationship, what our own system throws up at us in the face of being around others. And that strand of the practice also obviously doesn't have to end when we leave here. We can continue right on with that. So maybe some of us decide to take up the five precepts as a lifestyle in the lay form that we'll offer tomorrow. Not in the form that we do here, but in a form that's appropriate for the conditions and the circumstances of our, our life in the world. Maybe we choose just one part of them, as Kamala was saying, picking out some part that's particularly up for us, that's particularly sticky for us, and give our attention to that for a while, to explore it as a training, as a practice. There was a period in my practice when I decided to explore the precept on skillful speech in some detail. You know, this is a really uh, challenging one for all of us. The Buddha said that there are four kinds of unskillful speech. There's false speech, divisive speech, harsh speech, and idle speech or gossip. And I decided to spend a month really committing to each of these. Uh, all of them at once seemed like more than I could really realistically take on. <laughs> But one at a time, I thought, okay, I can, I can begin to broach that. 
And it was incredibly instructive, you know, not to say by any stretch that I, that I feel like I've mastered these now, but I really learned so much about uh, my system and my blocks and my sticking points through this process. The first one, just uh, the practice of uh, not saying anything that wasn't false, not saying anything that I wasn't sure was true, was how I phrased it. I kind of spent some time formulating what I thought the essence of each of these was for me. And, you know, it's not like I was a big liar to begin with, you know, it's not like I was in the habit of, of telling a lot of big lies, you know, but there's all the little white lies. Um, and there's other ways, you know, that's one of the things that I discovered through this process is there's a lot of ways of being dishonest. Um, I'm one of these people that likes to have the answers, you know. When things come up, I like to say, you know, oh, it's blah, 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 blah. <laughs> I like to have the answers and to know. So through this process, I just learned to say, I don't know a lot more. And that was a huge thing for me, just being able to let go a little bit of that need to always know, to always be right, to always be the one in the room with the answer. With divisive speech, with that one, I started with the intention not to say anything about a person who wasn't present. That was the original intention that I had. Um, which turned out to just not be tenable. <laughs> Turns out you can't really kind of navigate uh, normal human interactions that way. Or at least I felt I couldn't. <laughs> so I, I changed a little bit. I changed it to um, the intention not to say anything about someone who wasn't present that I wouldn't be okay with them overhearing. You know, like if they happened to walk through the door and catch me saying something, I would be okay with, with them hearing it. And it just so happened that during this time, um, two very close friends of mine got into a big conflict, an ugly conflict, over things that had happened between them. And there was a lot of he said, she said, you know, all the usual stuff. And really, there had been unskillfulness on both sides. Um, and I was kind of get in the middle, getting it from both sides. Um, and the, the timing of this was really uncanny. It was really just amazing how this coincided. Um, so I really got to see, because I had made this intention, I really got to see my mind in the midst of this and how tempted I was over and over and over again to jump in, you know, and to add my two cents into the fray, you know, to really contribute to, to all the words that were flying, you know, with each of them, you know. Um, you know, just saying, you know, well, you know, he said this, or, you know, she's up to that, or, you know, just adding my, my little bit to the conversation. But I had made this resolve. So I was managing to stick to it pretty well um, without anybody really noticing. They were, they were both kind of so busy talking about their side of the story that they didn't notice for a while that I wasn't really uh, joining in. Until one day, um, I was with one of these friends and with a third person too, another kind of impartial party that had gotten caught in the middle of this fray. And my friend was talking again about her side of things, you know, going over and over it. And, um, she knew that I had just seen, you know, the other person involved in the conflict relatively recently. So she started asking me, you know, well, what did he say about this or what's he doing about that? And I was kind of being as politic as I could, which is a bit of a stretch for me. That's not really my forte, but I was managing to, to kind of sidestep and, you know, deflect, you know, shoo, 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 deflect the questions. <laughs> And she didn't quite get what was going on, you know, because I'm not the most politic person in the world. She thought I just didn't kind of really get the point that she really wanted a report on what this person had said. So she kept asking more and more pointedly, you know, the questions that she had. 
Um, until finally the third person that was with us that had been observing this exchange just kind of looked at her and said, you know, she's not going to tell you. <laughs> he had gotten it. He had gotten what was going on. <laughs> and this was really a pivotal moment um, in many ways. You know, I saw the look of realization kind of come across her face. And in my own heart, there was that panic and dread of like, oh no, this is it. This is the end of our friendship because this was a person I really loved and cherished. I was like, you know, this is it. You know, we're, gonna, we're not going to survive this uh, betrayal or, you know, what I thought she would perceive as a betrayal. But then an amazing thing happened, which is that she just completely dropped it. <laughs> we moved on to an entirely different subject of conversation. And it didn't end our friendship. We actually got closer because she realized that I was someone who kept confidences. And if I was keeping his confidences, then I would also be keeping hers. So I got closer to her, and word of this got back around to the other person. I didn't tell him about it, um, but it, things have a way of percolating, <laughs> as we know. And I also got closer to him, because he realized the same thing. And I also got closer to the third person that had been observing the conversation. <laughs> so, you know, it was still an incredibly difficult and painful time for all of us. You know, the, the, this little incident didn't change that. Um, but it was also an incredible teaching, and there were good things that came out of it. So we may decide to continue on with our practice of sila in, in some very focused, some very deliberate way like this. At other times, our practice of sila may be very simple, just simply recognizing that we are caught. They were caught in that storm of our passions, and we just can't get out. Just simply seeing that is tremendously powerful practice. Just simply connecting with our aspiration to find another way to get through the situation, even if we have no idea what that might be and we're just completely confused. Just simply acknowledging sometimes with wholesome remorse after the fact just how badly we messed up. Setting that wholesome resolve to make amends when we can, to do better next time, to not allow ourselves to fall into that again when the conditions permit. At times, that's enough. You know, at times, that's actually fabulous if we can manage that, if we can connect in that way with our deeper aspiration. So we practice cultivating restraint here, and we can practice it out there too in all sorts of different ways. And then there's the strand of our meditation practice. And we talked about that this afternoon. We've been talking about that all along. Obviously, we cultivate it here in a very powerful way, a very deliberate way, a very continuous way. And it will take a different form in our everyday life. You know, as Kamala mentioned this afternoon, you know, you don't take the schedule with you back into ordinary life. You know, you start looking at people's faces and making eye contact and talking and all of that kind of thing. It's not realistic to try to, to replicate this experience outside of retreat. And that's not the intention. That's, there's nowhere in the Buddha's teachings or in how um, the Dharma is practiced today is there really a model for being in continuous retreat mode. Instead, the model is of, of a movement back and forth, in and out of retreat, in and out of community, back and forth between these different modes. And it can be very graceful. So we can continue right on with the strand of meditation in our spiritual life when we leave. There's no need to abandon our meditation practice when we cross the threshold tomorrow. We don't have to leave it on the doorstep of IMS. So maybe we can devote an hour or more a day to formal practice. That's wonderful if circumstances permit and we feel called to do that, by all means. 
But for, even for the busiest of us, and I speak here really from personal experience, you know, we can carve out times to devote to some form of meditation, some form of mental training, time to cultivate awareness or concentration or metta or whatever we feel is appropriate and helpful in a more deliberate way, in a more focused way. Maybe it's just lying in bed at the end of the day, at night, taking those few minutes to feel our breath, feel our body, check in with the state of the mind as we drift off to sleep. Maybe just walking down you know, the hall at the office, or eating our lunch, or the times when we're stopped at a red light. And I have one friend that's made that her practice for a while, to treat each red light and each stop sign as kind of a little mini retreat. You know? And she checks in, is it a... She texts, is it a five-breath red light or is it a ten-breath red light? You know, <laughs> There's all sorts of ways we can get creative with that. We can all find time for that in some way or another if we really have that aspiration, have that intention. And all of those moments add up. The Buddha said something along the lines of, uh, don't shy away from practice, thinking that no good will come of it. Drop by drop, the bucket is filled. And that's really how practice operates in our everyday life. Drop by drop, the bucket will be filled. And maybe for some of us, you know, we're not really sure if we want to take up this meditation or this path as an ongoing part of our lives. And that's okay, too. You know, we've been setting a very high bar here at this retreat. We've been kind of speaking to you all as if we're sure that you're on the path to liberation. Um, basically because we are. <laughs> but you don't have to see it that way. There's no demand. There's no expectation that that's how you frame your practice now. That's where you see yourself in life. Steve talked the other night about how there was this year and a half gap in his kind of on his path between his first encounter with the Dharma and then actually acting on it and taking it up actively because the conditions just weren't ripe yet at the beginning. Um, for me, it was more about four-year gap <laughs> I first came in contact with the Dharma when I was in college. I was a senior in my engineering course, and I was getting really burned out. You know, it was just really demanding. And so I signed up for this course that I saw a flyer for that was being offered at the university by a local Zen center. And I went to it. It was like, I forget, 8, 10, 12 weeks, something like that. And it was really interesting. It really opened my eyes to the mind for the first time. It was the first time I had really turned to look at, you know, what is this mind doing? It wasn't exactly the stress reduction I had hoped for, but, but it was still very <laughs> beneficial. Um, but I also had some reservations. You know, I wasn't quite sure about the teacher. There were some things about the way she behaved that gave me pause. Um, and just the, the style of practice didn't resonate so much. It was a little austere, a little severe for me. So there was a feeling that it wasn't really my path, but it was very eye-opening, very enlightening in many ways. But so when it was over and I I graduated and I moved out of that area back home, uh, I didn't follow up on it. You know, I didn't look for another group or another class or anything like that. Um, I had other things to focus on, um, especially becoming a functional adult. That was really important at that time in my life. (laughs) So for a couple of years, I had um, what you might call a bookstore practice. Um, this was the time when, you know, hanging out in bookstores and drinking gourmet coffee was kind of all the rage, you know. So my practice was to go to the bookstore and get my latte and then browse through the titles on the Buddhist shelf in the bookstore. That was my practice for a couple of years. <laughs> it kept me connected, you know. 
it, it, you know, might not seem like much, but looking back with hindsight, I can see that during that time I was just kind of guarding the seed, you know. There had been that little seed that I'd received, um, and I was just kind of, you know, guarding it, waiting. Then my practice kind of progressed to thinking about meditating. I had started working and I was in a demanding job. I was, again, getting burned out and I started to think about meditation again, kind of going back to that initial experience I'd had. So I got myself a Zabuton and a Zafu and a timer, you know, this this sitting setup like we all have here. And uh, I set them up in a corner, you know, like a lot of teachers recommended, you know, so there was a space there ready to go. It was all set up. All I had to do was sit down. when I felt like meditating. <laughs> and they sat there, you know, for a couple of years without ever being warmed my, my bottom. <laughs> and eventually I did take another class in this style of practice. You know, eventually I looked around and I kind of found a spiritual home here in these teachings. And I was really inspired, but I still couldn't get myself actually onto that cushion. So I made my practice to sit on the sofa and look at my sitting equipment (laughs) and see if I could just connect with, you know, why not? This was kind of my koan, you know, why not? Why am I not there? And it was all, you know, again, very instructive. I could see the fear that came up around really making that commitment, the indecision, you know, some confusion, hesitation. Um, I just wasn't ready to really commit. Um, I had an intuition, I think, on some level that it was going to be no going back. I think I had that sense then. And I just needed that time to be ready, to be ready to really plunge into it. So we talk about urgency, you know, and and how important that is on the path and and having that motivation to really get down to business. Um, But we can't make that happen, you know. That's, That's not always what's happening for us. It's just as important to have that time to, to nurture our seed until it's ready to sprout, until we find the time and the conditions and the right practice for us to really um, enter into it with our whole heart, with our whole uh, spirit. This is a great teaching that I love from Tangpulu Sayadaw, who is another one of the great Burmese masters from the 20th century. It's called, What Makes a Meditation? When you know that you are having greed, you no longer possess ignorance, but knowledge. If you know that you are angry and have hatred, you are no longer in ignorance, but possess knowledge. When you know that you are having ignorance, that knowing becomes knowledge, and it is meditation. Even if you become aware of the feeling, I don't want to meditate, that means you have the insight that you don't want to meditate. Since you know that you don't want to meditate, that knowing becomes the meditation, the mindfulness and awareness that you know what you don't want to do. So the way to take this practice home with you is just simply not to leave it here. Don't leave it here when you go. Carry it with you. There are all sorts of ways to juggle the practice, to engage with those three elements for happiness. But we need to keep looking at the complete picture of what's going on in our spiritual lives. It's about so much more than retreat. It's about so much more than meditation. You know, if I think just about my meditation practice, um, my practice is really falling off the edge of the cliff, you know, (laughs) since becoming a parent. There's just not the time and the energy for it that I used to have before. Uh, 
On the other hand, if I think just about my sila practice, it's really taken off, you know, since becoming a parent. It's become really rich, really vibrant. If I think just about kind of my understanding and, and its growth, that element of the practice is kind of like, eh, you know, I'm moving along, you know, I've made some progress, but there's still a long way to go, kind of middling. But if I look at the big picture, at the interplay of those three elements over time, I can see that I'm on the path. I'm on my path. And at different times, you know, different elements of it, that have been come more to the fore, others receded. There's been this, this fluidity to it that over time evens out. And being on the path, in whatever way uh, it takes its shape at each point in my life, is just so rich and so satisfying. So if we think, you know, there's no way that I can do this out there, it really depends on what you think this is, you know. What do you think this is? What do you think you're doing here? If it's all about the formal meditation, you know, paying attention to the breath very closely and continuously, walking very slowly, um, not speaking, you know, then yeah, we can't do that out there, probably. And even if we could, we wouldn't really recommend it. We need that uh, alternation in our lives. We need to go back and forth in and out of the world. But continuing to live mindfully, continuing to be aware of our motivations, our emotions, our bodies and our thoughts, on a level that's consistent with our everyday activities and our circumstances, that we can do, that all of us can do, if we just keep remembering, if we just keep reminding ourselves to do it. And our wish for you here is that your time here will help you to remember that. The Buddha told how once in an earlier life he had been a rich Brahmin called Balama, and he had distributed an enormous amount of alms to the sick and the needy and the poor, and it had brought him great merit on his path towards becoming a Buddha. But he said, better yet would be taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And this would be perfected if one observed the five precepts, It would be still better if one could imbibe a slight fragrance, if only for a moment, of an all-encompassing radiation of love. The best of all, however, the ultimate, would be to cultivate, even for the time of a finger snap, the thought of impermanence. So let's sit for a moment. Best of all would be to cultivate, even for the time of a finger snap, the thought of impermanence. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.